the NAACP and BET for convening this town hall. Tonight we have a dynamic group of speakers who will address the COVID-19 pandemic, which has already taken nearly 15,000 lives in the United States, including 1,827 dead just today. And we'll also be discussing the disparate impact this has had on black communities. Our panelists for tonight include President and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, President of BET Network, Scott Mills, who will discuss the urgency of this moment and what needs to happen for our community. Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, who will provide us with an overview of federal efforts taking place around the pandemic. President of the National Medical Association, Dr. Oliver Brooks, who will discuss mitigation strategies. House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, who will talk about upcoming legislation. Representative Karen Bass, who will discuss the, discuss the economic impact. Representative Benny Thompson, who will discuss civic participation. And last but not least, Robert Brace, who will give us some final thoughts, tips, and inspiration to keep our minds, bodies, and souls well during this time. Now, be mindful, we have eight presenters in only one hour for a discussion about a pandemic that raises questions about everything from structural racism to access to health care, economic inequality, environmental inequality, the spread of the virus in incarcerated populations, conspiracy theories, and the role of our faith communities. We will not be able to cover all of these issues tonight, but we do want to get to as much as we can, so I'm going to ask our speakers in advance to be as succinct as possible. Please know also that this is not the first NAACP town hall on the pandemic, nor will it be the last. Just a few weeks ago, the NAACP hosted a similar town hall with Surgeon General Jerome Adams, Senator Kamala Harris, the President of the National Baptist Convention, and several others. So let us begin tonight with NAACP President Derek Johnson. Thank you, Keith. And I want to welcome everyone uh, to this, this evening's town hall meeting. I am really pleased to have joining us this evening uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, the Chairman of the uh, Committee on Homeland Security, uh, Benny Thompson, and the Chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus. In addition to that, we are especially pleased to have the President of the National Medical Association. It is an association of African-American doctors from across the country. As the NAACP continue our partnership with BET Networks. Uh, this is an important time for the NAACP to continue to inform our community uh, concerning this pandemic. Uh, being someone who had to live through the Katrina disaster, uh, our ability to get information to our community becomes even more crucial. Uh, and that is the goal for these town hall meetings. Uh, as we move forward, I also would like to invite many of the listeners to uh, support the NAACP. We are in a a predicament now, like many other organizations, particularly the black church, where our membership base is our support. And, and if we don't have individuals in our community supporting our ability to function, we cannot continue to do the work that we do. And with that said, I want to invite uh, our partner in this effort, our current network host for the Image Awards, the president of BET Network, uh, Scott Mills, to I have a few words before we get insightful information from our wonderful panelists this evening. Scott? Great. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for your leadership and the NAACP's leadership in this important town hall series that we think really will provide tremendous value to our community. And thank you to the panelists who are participating and the extraordinary 
here on this uh, conversation with us. It, it, it's immensely valuable, and we're tremendously grateful. I, I'll be very brief because we have so many valuable people, people to speak, but I would note that obviously we all know that recent reports are confirming what we all tragically anticipated, and that is that this COVID-19 virus is compounding the pre-existing health and financial vulnerabilities that many African Americans face. And that's showing up in the infection rates and the death rates that are far exceed the rest of the population. And it's also showing up in the adverse financial consequences that are impacting our community disproportionately. So I'm sure that everyone's aware of the heartbreaking death rates that have been reported in our community over the last several days. But one of the things that people have less visibility into today is the financial impact on our community. And BET went out to the market uh, with a survey recently to understand what the financial impact of the uh, COVID crisis is. On And two alarming statistics jumped out. The first is that 54% of black American adults reported that they were in need of help with their bills. And a full 50% said that they were in need of food assistance at the moment. So this really underscores that this is an extraordinary crisis, obviously, globally, yes, nationally, but in particular for the African-American community. So we really commend Derek and the NAACP and all the participants on this call uh, for engaging on this subject. Um, today, we announced that we, we are creating a relief fund specifically targeted to African-American communities and that we will raise, uh, we will put all of our efforts, our capital, our relationships behind raising significant amounts of money to, to support that fund and support our community. And we announced that we're going to use our Saving Ourselves uh, relief effort. We, we rallied for uh, the people of Haiti after the earthquake. We rallied for our, our community in Katrina, and we are now rallying for our communities here impacted by COVID. And we're marshalling an amazing array of talent who wants to provide community connection and solace around uh, the COVID relief impacts. And so we'll be airing a COVID relief crisis later this month, a COVID relief, COVID crisis relief event later this month. So what we really want to convey is that BET is, is totally aligned with our community and totally in the fight with everyone who is fighting on behalf of our country and our community as we, in, as we uh, go up against this crisis. And we are, we have a large array of initiatives that we're going to undertake to support our community. And with that, it is now my extraordinary privilege to turn the floor over to Speaker Pelosi. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you, Scott, and with you, Derek. Thank you for the invitation to join my distinguished colleagues, Mr. Clyburn, our whip. Chair Ambassador, Chair of the Black Caucus, Benny Thompson, Chair of the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, it's an honor to be with each and every one of you. Uh, Keith, thank you for hosting us here. I, am, I want you to talk about the financial piece of this. As we know, this coronavirus has been an assault on the lives and the livelihoods of the American people. I know that Dr. Brooks will be talking about more on terms of the health issues that are related and they are connected to uh, disparities that existed before and that's why whether it's asthma or diabetes or heart condition or some of those so many of those other uh, predispositions have made it even worse 
for members of the African-American community to be susceptible to this. So we have one disparity that we have to address. I see everything as an opportunity. And I thank the NAACP for its leadership in so many ways, and BET as well, uh, for getting the word out, for getting the word out so that people know why, how they're at risk, how they can mitigate for that, and how they can have some uh, support in terms of the financial assault that is being made on them as well. So I think the best way for me to frame this in the time that I have is the following. Here we are in Holy Week. Holy Week for many of us, Passover for some, Ramadan for others, but a time when we cherish, when we believe, when we have faith. People say to me, where is hope? I said, hope is sitting where it always is, right next to faith, right between faith and charity. So we have to believe uh, in the charity of others, the kindness of others, the goodness, the sense of community, and that gives people hope. And so in terms of the financial assault, let me just frame it in what happened in the last 24, 36 hours. Yesterday morning, the Secretary of the Treasury called me and he said, uh, well, you know, we started implementing this plan on Friday, and right now I'm calling you for $250 billion more by Thursday. I said, let me get this straight. You're asking for a quarter of a trillion dollars in the next 48 hours? I'll have to get back to you on that. And when the leader Schumer and I got back to him, we came back with our plan, which was a plan to give a, a portion of those resources to address the underserved, underbanked, if you want to say, communities uh, among us. Because many of the people who were uh, applying for these loans, uh, where that were part of the $350 billion in the CARES Act, where people had long-term relationships with banks and the rest. And again, some of our people did not. And as you know, there's, there was need for us to do something very particular into the community. So working with our chair, uh, Maxine Waters, Nydia uh, Velasquez, we're very proud of the beautiful diversity of our, um, our leadership in the Congress, as well as uh, Richie Neal and others, uh, we, uh, Mr. Clyburn, Mr. Uh, Karen Bass, Benny Thompson, we came back and said, okay, we can do this if you are willing to put a big chunk of, mon of that money into the, um, uh, the needs of the underserved, that something called the Community Development Financial Institutions, which are, would be a very major part of how we um, can distribute the money in a way to community banks, et cetera, uh, so, uh, so that uh, more people could take advantage of that. Oh my gosh, they were shocked. We said these are still small businesses. These are businesses that uh, are, are qualify to get this. It just is if it's, you're talking about X amount of dollars, first come, first serve, our people might not be among the first come and first serve in that mix. And so this is what we are insisting upon. That is what they are resisting, and we're waiting to hear back from them. But I think we have to see everything as an opportunity. And this has to be an opportunity where we just break ourselves loose, break ourselves loose of the disparity in access to credit uh, that is out there and is a detriment to so many of our people who, who have small businesses. How optimistic are they uh, to have these small businesses go forward and yet 
uh, when there, there is this opportunity from the federal government to lend them money, and then on top of that, to forgive it under certain circumstances uh, that we cannot participate because we're last in line because we don't have an ongoing relationship with a bank or so. So it is, uh, uh, again, we have to fight for that uh, because otherwise it'll just be business as usual, and that is not in the interest of our, uh, what we want to do for the, uh, for the community, uh, for the community. Uh, so let me just say this in this context again. We started out in the month of March, March 4th, we had legislation passed on the House that was about testing, testing, testing. We want testing, testing, testing for the members of the African-American community. And we want that testing uh, to show who's tested, who's, who's infected, and whose lives have been lost in all of it. We want a measure of that. So, again, we are still fighting for that right now in this legislation that we're talking about right now. We want uh, a racial profile of how this, how this uh, coronavirus is affecting so many people. So it is, um, uh, and when we talk about uh, uh, them saying, well, you're stopping money going to uh, the um, small business. No, we're not. We want it to go to all small businesses, and we want to have a measure of who's benefiting from the financial investment we're making. April, March 4th, our first bill. March 14th, our second bill. March 28th, the president signed the third bill. Three bills in a bipartisan way to address, again, the assault on the lives and the livelihood of the American people. And now we're, they're asking for a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours. All we want is about $60 billion of that for the purposes, I said, for the moment. We'll need more. But we also want our people to be able to participate in a stronger way in the grants to small businesses and increasing that in the uh, disaster assistance loans, and we want our people to participate in that. So we have resources there, too, but everybody participates in that. This it, We just enlarged the pie that so, so many of our folks could uh, uh, have a share of it. So the CDFI, the Community Development Financial Institution, uh, under a larger context of community-based financial institutions. It includes credit union allocations, credit unions allocations, minority depository institute, certified development corporation, micro-lending, which is a, an initiative under the SBA that assists many minority women in owned businesses. We have a, we have, the, we know what we want, you know, we have a plan. This is not pie in the sky. These are it, institutions that exist uh, paths that are there, and, and we want to use them. And so that's what this fight is about today. But as I say, we want it all to work. We've participated in a bipartisan way, even though we have some questions about uh, some of the decisions that are made in certain quarters of our government. But nonetheless, when we did this last bill, CARES bill, we turned it upside down. It was corporate America trickle down. We turned it to workers first bubble up and we want all of the um, advantages of the legislation to uh, start at the bottom and bubble up so that's where we are with this again Sharon Bass excuse me Karen Bass and others have been so instrumental in saying we want the testing we want the demographics of this we want the racial um, uh, uh, 
taking account of how people are being affected by this because otherwise we're flying blind. We're not going to be able to address the needs unless we know what they are exactly and we have a pretty good idea of the bad path that this could be going down. We must hold it in check. And that's why I'm so glad to be here with so many of you uh, to just tell you why sometimes when you see things held up in D.C. and they say, oh my, it's uh, whatever they call it. No, it's, it's we're fighting. We're fighting for uh, everybody to participate more fully in the economic as well as the health opportunities that exist in this. And we want to use this coronavirus crisis as a way to just say we're realigning. It's all different from now on. We're not going to be at the low end of the receiving line of this stuff. We're going to be right there, right there helping to shape it. And you know what? We're not doing the black community any favor doing this. It's what is supposed to happen. But the black community is doing a favor to America by being willing to participate in such a strong way. So thank you all for your patriotism. Uh, God bless you on this holy week. And I'm supposed to answer any questions when that is appropriate. Again, I thank NAACP and BP for the opportunity to be here with my colleagues and with all of you. Thank you. And thank you, Speaker Pelosi. This is Keith Boykin coming in again. I want to remind all the uh, the uh, guests who are on the line, if you would like to ask a question, you have the ability to do so by pressing star three to get into the question queue, which will allow us to screen the questions and be able to, to get people to ask questions to the uh, to the various panelists here. We won't have time for a lot of questions, but we will have time for some, hopefully. And our next speaker is Dr. Oliver Brooks, who is the president of the National Medical Association, who will discuss briefly national mitigation strategies. All right, thank you very much. I want to give thanks to the speaker, Pelosi, and uh, to Derek Johnson and Scott Miller for hosting this of the NAACP and BET. Great panel you have. So I will touch on eight areas very briefly, all related to mitigation and spread and what's going on with this disease in our country and around the world. I look at it like a slow time bomb. It just kind of hit. And now it's just exploding out there, like an extended release pill. It comes in, take it, and then it just grows and grows in your body. As of today, 395,000 cases in the U.S., 12,754 deaths. It's in all 50 states and all five territories. Worldwide, we have 1.475 cases with 86,979 deaths. So this is real. Public health, number two, public health officials recommend the following steps to prevent the spread of all respiratory viruses. So remember that, not just COVID-19, but also influenza. Wash your hands frequently for at least 20 seconds and some can say it's do happy birthday or an alphabet song. I say think of a 20-second prayer that you can speak to yourself. It speaks to others in terms of what we need at this point in time. Cough into your elbow or a tissue and not your hands. Dispose of the tissue. Clean and disinfect frequently touch surfaces at home, work, and school. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Keep your hands out of the, the upper area, call it the key. Cross your eyes and down toward the mouth, the respiratory tract. It gets in on the mucous membrane. It goes down your respiratory tract 
and into the lungs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. If you are sick, stay at home. Do not travel or report to work. Practice healthy habits. Get plenty of sleep. Be physically active as best you can. Manage your stress. Drink plenty of fluids and eat nutritious foods. The feeling is that if you drink plenty of fluid, some of this water will wash you down into the stomach, and the stomach is pH of 1, and it will kill the virus exposed into respiratory tract. Then keep your social distance, which is two meters or six feet. If you extend your arms out, that is approximately six feet. That's how far away you should be from others. Number three, the CDC generally tracks virulent outbreaks um, with age, race, and ethnicity data and location. For some reason, for the coronavirus, this pandemic, the CDC has released location and age data only, but it has been silent on race. We're getting the race data from different different areas, different localities, states, cities. We, there is no repository right now for race data, and that would be very helpful. And so we know, at least in Illinois, Louisiana, Alabama, New York, New Jersey, Wisconsin, there's disproportionate effect on African Americans. I'll leave that to the others if they want to get into that a little deeper. Four, flattening the curve. The country's collective aim is to flatten the curve of an infection. This means that there is not a spike. When you get a spike, it can lead to a surge of cases that can overwhelm the healthcare system. It also implies more cases. To flatten the curve, we shelter in place in California's called safer at home. And as an example of this, California gave the shelter in place of safer at home order on March 19th, two days before New York did. And in California, the rate of rise, which is what we're worried about, that slope, is approximately five times lower than New York. So just that two days made a difference. Now, both states reacted well, but flattening the curve is crucially important. Number five, I heard uh, speakers closely say testing. The more you test, the more you find asymptomatic carriers. One in four, it is estimated, are asymptomatic. They don't even know they have it. And then they can self-isolate. Number six, community spread. That's what you get. When it goes around, like first we said, oh, you must have been around someone who traveled or you must have uh, had close contact with someone who was sick. Right now, the majority of cases are community spread. We don't know how people are getting it. We just know that it is spreading from one person to the other without any known index case. This is what is making it so widespread. Number seven, it's called the r naught. The uh, reproduction number, this is the relative infectivity of a virus. And I think it's important to understand that so we know exactly what we're dealing with. So, for example, regular seasonal influenza has a R naught of about one. COVID has anywhere from somewhere, the ceiling is around two. So about quite maybe up to four. You see varying data. So two to four times as infective as um Influenza. Pertussis, whooping cough, 5.5. So pertussis is much more contagious, but it's not as virulent. Chickenpox, 10 to 12. So it has a very high rate of spread. And measles, 12 to 18. So that's very widespread. So we see that COVID has a low to medium rate of infectivity, but it's also very widespread and it's also very virulent. That's what we're seeing. Somewhere around 1% is the mortality rate, which is very, uh, around 2%, and that's very, very high. 
So this can be affected by something like social distancing. And then finally, what can we do? First, we can have town halls such as this, and this is excellent. And more seriously, we can follow the recommendations. Those in the African-American community who are higher risk of bad outcomes, take it very seriously. Socially uh, isolate if you are a potential case. Keep your social distance. Wash your hands. Don't, don't touch your face. These things are all very important. So, like, unlike other entities in the United States, this virus does not discriminate. So, I will close with saying this. Remember, when the country gets a cold, the black community gets pneumonia. That's one of those old sayings, but right now it is somewhat ironic and appropriate at this time. Thank you very much, and uh, appreciate those remarks. Uh, I want to remind everyone who is listening that if you want to ask a question, you can press star three. That's star three to ask a question. You can uh, be uh, positioned into the queue. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Brooks. We do have a question. Uh, the question is coming to us from Jackie in North Carolina, and it's a question for Speaker Pelosi about small businesses. Jackie, you're on live. Go ahead with your question. Hello, and thank you so much for taking my question. My question is, how can we in the rural communities, uh, small businesses and churches, take advantage of the PPP program when we cannot get past the application process? Because most of those entities and organizations are not set up for the documentation that's being required. We are being told, don't even bother to come into, into the banks because you don't qualify. So what can we do? Well, thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie, for your question. This is one of the fights that we're having right now. Well, that was a discussion that we're having right now that uh, my colleagues on the phone here with on the town hall with me are engaged in as well. Uh, when we saw the, the program go forward, it became clear to us that they were making it more difficult for those who did not have a long-term banking relationship in order to get this. So that's why when they came back yesterday and asked for $250 billion, we said, that's interesting. We're not going there unless we all go there together. And we put, and we put together, we split it 125, 125, 125 for what they were asking for, and then 120, which was the PPP program writ large, and then 125 specifically to help uh, rural communities, veterans, veteran women, minority-owned businesses, and the rest who really have not had the same kind of relationships with their banks. We also, in this legislation, and, and to do so, we did so in a way that empowered uh, gave money, that is to say, empowered um, some of the uh, co um, community development financial entities uh, to do the job that they're set up to do in order to help uh, so that when somebody says to you, you don't qualify, no, you do. If you do qualify as a small business, then the community-based financial institutions such as credit unions with an allocation for them Minority Depository Institute, Certified Development Corporation, Micro Lending. This is all there, and we put in the wording. This is about rural women, uh, minority, and um, 
veteran-owned institutions, uh, 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 small businesses uh, that might not qualify, uh, not just, I would say, have the same access. It takes us to the larger issue of access to credit that is a challenge all of the time, more so now, but with an opportunity for, for us to make a change. So, Jackie, I'm happy to volunteer to take up your case specifically, but please know that what we're trying to do in this legislation is to make it easier for everyone, especially in the very small uh, business community. Again, in rural America, this is very, very important. So I appreciate your question and uh, be happy to work with you in particular. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. For those of you who didn't catch all the acronyms, PPP stands for the Paycheck Protection Program, which is an SBA or Small Business Association loan that's supposed to help businesses keep their workforces employed during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, we are now going to move on to uh, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. I want to remind the listeners again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star three to be uh, put into the queue. House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. Uh, thank you very much, and Mr. Moderator, and thank you to all of you for uh, participating in this manner, and thanks to the NAACP uh, for doing this. Let me be rather quick with this. I think that overall, uh, I like to focus on the fact that our big challenge in this country, being made more so by this pandemic, is making this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all. And that's what our challenge is with this legislation. And I'd like to pick up uh, where uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, just dropped off with the PPP program. One of the things we did with this legislation is to make sure that churches and private nonprofits get treated the same way as small business under this legislation. Now, I want everybody to know that we have made it possible uh, for uh, churches uh, to receive the same treatment that a small business re re receives. That means if a church moved uh, to uh, protect the payroll uh, of its employees and any 501c3, uh, they will be treated the same way as a small business. Uh, and they will be eligible uh, to borrow uh, money from the SBA uh, to keep their business going, keep their employees on the payroll. And if you were to do that, uh, that money can very well turn into a grant. So if you've got a 501c3, if you've got a, 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 a church, you do this. Uh, and if you pay 75% uh, of the money that you borrow from uh, SBA, 75% of it goes to payroll. You can use the other 25% uh, to for your mortgage on your church or whatever you may want to use it for to help pay your pastor's salary, all that. Uh, of course, the pastor's salary would be in, uh, in the payroll. Uh, then... That could very well turn into a grant later on that you would not have to pay back. So be sure uh, to take advantage of this, uh, and I think it's going to be very, very helpful uh, to a, a, a lot of small communities, especially the rural churches. 
Now, a couple things we've got to do. We've got to keep the pressure on states like South Carolina that have not expanded Medicaid. Uh, I think that it is big uh, for us to start now working, especially in this election year, on uh, making the expansion of Medicaid a big issue. Those of us uh, in Washington are going to work very hard uh, to do what we can at the federal level uh, so that these states, the uh, citizens in states that, that refuse to expand, we're going to try to do what we can uh, to cover that issue uh, at the state level. Now, we've passed three pieces of legislation already. Uh, uh, the speaker spoke to some of that. There's one piece of legislation I want to focus on here, one part of the legislation I want to focus on, and that is these direct payments. A lot of people are asking a lot of questions about the direct payments. $1,200 uh, per person if your income is under $75,000 a year. That's uh, If it's a family of four, that's $1,200 for each adult, uh, and then $500 for each child, dependent child, uh, if, it, if it's your child and is not a dependent, won't qualify, that's means $3,400 of direct payment. We've also expanded uh, unemployment insurance. Uh, we've extended that, uh, I think, 24 weeks is the, um, uh, the ordinarily is the extent. We've expanded that uh, about 33 uh, weeks. And so uh, unemployment Expansion is there. Please make your uh, communities uh, uh, aware of that. And, and remember, we also added above whatever your uh, payment might be. In South Carolina, it's like $324, I think, is the, the payment. We got $600 on top of that. So anybody who's getting the max here in South Carolina uh, gets another $600. So they'll be getting $950 uh, a, a week. Now, we did that, and our Republican friends tried to stop us. Uh, didn't want us to put that $600 on there, but we did it. Uh, their efforts failed. And we're now about to take a look at uh, KISS 2. We're beginning to debate that. The speaker spoke about uh, the emergency legislation that we're getting ready to try to do within the next several days. But after that, we're going to be developing a second CHAIRS uh, 2 program, at which time we are going to try to make sure that we uh, address all of the unintended consequences uh, that uh, develop out of CHAIRS 1. Uh, so we want to hear from you, uh, from people who are having experiences uh, that they think um, may be able to uh, get corrected uh, in the next, another piece of legislation, let us know, because we want to get uh, this next bill comprehensive enough uh, for us to meet all of the needs uh, and then uh, begin to work uh, future in the future on uh, a big, a comprehensive uh, inf infrastructure bill. But we aren't going to do that uh, just yet. So the last thing I want to mention here um, is the fact that we have to make sure that these new statistics that we hear 
Chicago is in the Illinois, and most especially Louisiana, uh, Michigan. Uh, these statistics are, are, are just unnerving. We've got to make sure that we do what is necessary uh, to expand community health centers. Uh, we want to do that uh, in the next CARES package. Uh, we would like to see. Our goal is for there to be a community health center within uh, commuting distance of every person uh, in the country. And then uh, we've got to do some broadband deployment because we're not going to get telehealth done in rural communities without broadband. Those are the two big things we're going to be working on uh, going forward, and I'll get back. Thank you, Representative. Uh, uh, Carbon, we appreciate that. And uh, we have a lot of questions we've gotten here, and uh, we're going to get to some of those questions in just a moment. But first, we're going to go to Benny Thompson, who is the chair of the Homeland Security Committee in the House, and he's going to speak to us about civic participation. Representative Thompson, you're on. Thank you very much. Uh, I think. Uh, NAACP and uh, BET for putting this on. Uh, let me be quite clear. Civic participation is a must in this effort. Uh, today, we heard from the NFL, uh, the NBA, the National Restaurant Association, every organization you can imagine saying they didn't get the help they wanted and CARES won. So they're coming now uh, in mass uh, trying to get their peace. Uh, if the people on this call uh, don't join hands and forces, uh, it will be difficult for uh, the speaker and, and the whip and others on this call uh, to get the things in play that we need. Uh, so please call your congressperson, your senators, and let them know what's going on. Just backing up a little bit, this administration sat on its heels for eight weeks saying that uh, this coronavirus was a hoax, uh, that it was a right-wing, left-wing conspiracy uh, perpetrated by uh, the left-wing media uh, and civil rights organizations like the NAACP, uh, and as, as already uh, has been uh, mentioned, they refused to provide the data uh, that would identify the most impacted. But we have that data now, and people of color uh, historically are the ones most impacted. So sororities, fraternities, houses of worship, uh, town hall meetings, everything you can have, Facebook Live, uh, any kind of streaming uh, uh, programs you have, you have to get the word out uh, that testing is required. Now, part of the testing is a decision local health departments uh, facilitate if you don't have a community health center in your area. What you have to do is to make those public health agencies come to your community. Uh, in my district, for instance, we don't have public transportation in the majority of my district. So if you put testing in an area uh, where there's 
no public transportation. Uh, it makes it virtually impossible for the most impacted constituents uh, to get there. So you have to make sure that all these things uh, are uh, taken care of as you put together your civic participation. Raising hell will get you something. Sitting back, uh, hoping that something will happen, won't get it done. I yield back. And thank you, Representative Thompson. Those numbers are daunting, as uh, you mentioned and, Con and Representative Clyburn mentioned before. In Chicago's Cook County, 70% of the deaths so far from COVID-19 are African-American, but blacks make up only 23% of the population in Cook County. In Louisiana, 70% of the people who have died from coronavirus are black, although blacks make up only 33% of the population. Those are just some of the numbers that are out there. Uh, so now we're going to move to one final member of Congress, uh, Karen Bass, who is the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, and we're going to ask Karen Bass to speak for a moment, and then we're going to take your questions that we have lined up. All right, Representative Bass. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your, uh, for your leadership and pulling call together. Let me just say in terms of addressing the economic impacts, uh, in January of 2017, the Congressional Black Caucus conducted a survey to see where black America was, you know, around the country. And the number one issue they came up with was wealth creation. And if you look at the economic impact, it is directly related to the health outcomes that we are seeing right now. And so the fact that so many of us work in the service industries are considered essential workers and uh, the comorbidity, the, fa the health factors that we have that impact us all contribute to our health status, but also the economic impact. So, you know, many of us had not recovered from the recession in 2008 when we lost so much of our housing, which is why I know wealth creation was one of the number one issues that black America wanted to see the Congressional Black Caucus address. And so right now we are focused on making sure, you know, you see the incredible disparities in terms of death rates. So we want to make sure that we can address this now. We know that we have hypertension and diabetes, and that's what leads to it having such a negative impact on us. But because we're also the most exposed, that impacts it as well. So the Black Caucus is calling on, number one, that data that was mentioned before. We absolutely have to have the data. The CDC decided to stop releasing it publicly. We need to have that happen. We need to have focused testing, and we need to have rapid testing. We're concerned about losing our churches, losing our small businesses. You look at the hair salons, the restaurants, our churches. So the negative impacts on us economically are profound. And so because of that, we are calling for a very specific way to address the African-American population. Thank you very much. And thank you, Representative Bass. We appreciate your remarks. We have a lot of questions that I mentioned before. We're going to go right to them with our first question for, from Judith in Maryland. Judith in Maryland has a question about racial disparities. Judith? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, uh, yes. Um, I have a question um, about the disparities. So I know that we're saying that one of the reasons that um, that um, the disproportionate amount of black people dying is largely due to our underlying conditions, you know, hypertension, diabetes. But I can't help but believe that um, another large reason why is because 
where the um, there's uh, disproportionate treatment, like we're not being treated equitably. So in other words, when a black person walks into the hospital versus a white person, it's going to be that white person, unfortunately, that gets the ventilator. And that's something I haven't heard anybody verbally say, but this is something that I feel and and um and not just feel, but this has been um, our history all throughout. And so I'm wondering if there's anything that we could actually do about that. I mean, we can't prove it. We're not at that hospital. But just to have the book release, you know, said that, you know, we want equitable treatment, even in, um, you know, the fact that when we um, are able to get the testing, and what happens when we actually get into the hospital. Thank you very much, Judith. Dr. Brooks, I'd like to address that. I was going to suggest that, hold on just a second, Dr. Brooks, I was going to introduce you for a moment. I was going to suggest that Dr. Oliver Brooks, the president of the National Medical Association, could respond to that. Dr. Brooks? Okay, thank you. So, first of all, as of now, I have no no evidence to support that. However, we do have a large body of evidence that there is what's called implicit bias, that there are biases that treating physicians and other healthcare providers have when they view an African-American patient versus a non-African-American patient. So though we have no evidence of that occurring right now, there is plenty of evidence to show that that has happened in all other aspects of healthcare and the provision of care. So I think that there is, that is a reasonable way to feel. Uh, and as this plays itself out with data, we may actually have data that shows implicit bias does in fact come into these life and death decisions. But Dr. Brooks, just to follow up, when you say there's no evidence, you mean there's no uh, scientific data, but there is, there is anecdotal evidence, correct? Yeah, I believe there, I don't, I'm, tend to go for scientific evidence and what will happen again data 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 as this plays itself through as we're in phase three which is the aftermath we're in phase two right now which is the, the war that which she spoke of will come out i imagine okay all right thank you uh remember if you'd like to call in the the number is star three to be put into the queue and we have another caller on the line and that is nina in philadelphia who has a question about elections nina in philadelphia you're on the line uh, thank you. Thank you for this uh, event tonight. Um, I, I had a question about the COVID-19 pan- pandemic and the impact on exercising our hard-earned uh, right to vote. We have new primaries coming up, and as we know, many states are resorting to mail-by-vote. However, there's a digital divide. I'm calling from Philadelphia, where we have 24% poverty, and many folks don't have access to the Internet. And we have to have a robust way of making sure they get their ballots if this were to persist, this uh, pandemic were to persist. So I just wanted to know what resources are going to be put out into these states. We're a battleground state. It's critical. We get a turnout in our votes. And uh, I just wanted to see what the NWCP and others are going to have a coordinated effort on the ground to make sure not only people are getting their ballots, filling their ballots, and then returning their ballots. Okay, thank you, Nina. Who would like to take that question? This is Derek. Uh, It's a great question. And yes, uh, for the NAACP, we see this as the most critical year for our activities. We have partnered with a data science team. We're targeting uh, 11 primary states that that it's going to be crucial for us to turn out the vote. In those 11 states, we have targets within the states uh, and if we are successful, once we're successful, it can impact 190 electoral votes. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of those states. Uh, Philadelphia is in the target area. And as we build out the program, 
uh, that will launch in June. We'll be working through June all the way through November to ensure that we increase uh, black voter participation. Uh, but we'll also be looking at what uh, will be required in this new environment, uh, whether or not uh, we will still be under some level of, 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 of uh, quarantine because of, of the public health concerns or whether or not we go back to business as usual. Whatever the case may be, we'll be sending out a auto call to everyone in our database asking them to sign up as volunteers to help us I, uh, reach out to what's called infrequent voters because this election will be determined based on black voter turnout. If we turn out, we get the outcome that we were fighting for. If we don't turn out, we will get an outcome that will, will cause devastating effect, not only in our community, but for this democracy as we know it. Thank you very much. If I may add to that, Nancy, I know Mr. Kyber was still there, but he's been a champion on this issue. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that uh, the coronavirus has pointed out very clearly is the need for vote by mail, as, as uh, our guest indicated. And uh, the, in order to do that, we need uh, more resources to make sure that we remove obstacles of participation for people to do just that. We had a couple billion dollars in our bill to do that. Uh, it, it ended up $400 million in the uh, CARES bill. We need more so that we reach everybody because this is about saving not only our lives and our livelihoods, but our democracy. And so the, uh, the other side put provisions in to block the spending of the money that, that we even had bipartisan support on the outside to say remove these obstacles of of uh, um, putting up a percentage of the money before you can get any money, those kinds of things. And uh, so this is a moment for us. You know, it's a moment in terms of health. It's a moment in terms of access to capital. It's a moment in terms of our democracy. So I love the question. Mr. Clyburn has been a champion on this in terms of, of uh, his passion for making sure that every obstacle of participation is removed. Mr. Uh, Benny Thompson's committee has a major piece of this, and he, too, has championed it, and, of course, uh, Karen Bass as well. So I feel comfortable that there are leaders in the Congress, right from the communities uh, that are most effective, that are fighting for this. But this is, again, this is important to the community. It's important to the nation. And this is a fight that we, again, I'll say discussion, <laughs> that we have to make, but sometimes it's more like a fight. Uh, thank, thank you, Speaker Pelosi. Yeah, but I think you said it all. Uh, just a quick follow-up, uh, Speaker Pelosi, or, or majority with Clyburn. Uh, given the fact that President Trump has expressed his opposition to mail-in voting, uh, is there a, a possible obstacle that will be faced, or how will that be overcome? I think that it's going to be an obstacle. We have to face that. Uh, I think that the, most of the leadership in the uh, Republican leadership uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, in the Senate too, for that matter, uh, will take their signals from him. And I think that's all we get getting from him, a big signal. Uh, he knows full well that well, I think it's the state of Oregon, uh, 100% uh, of their vote in, is by mail. He voted by mail. His wife voted by mail. Uh, voted by mail, there's nothing fraudulent about that. But that's what he's doing. He's doing a narrative that he hopes 
that will be a signal uh, to his uh, colleagues in the House and the Senate uh, to resist this. We have got to raise this profile. Uh, we got to build public opinion, and we got to make sure uh, that we do what is necessary to have voting by mail as part uh, of the process come November. I'm not saying it has to be 100% voted by mail, but we've got to be able uh, to have that as part of the process. Uh, and I think the speaker uh, is uh, working on that. I think we're going to do something about that uh, in these next two pieces of legislation. Thank you, Reverend. Uh, yeah. And let me just make a couple other comments. Uh, you know, states have the opportunity to take some of that $400 million. They can expand early voting if they want to. They can expand online voter registration. They can make the process of voting easier if they choose to do so. So from a civic participation and engagement standpoint, we all have to encourage our states to look at that. Uh, voter ID is a red heron used by Republicans to make sure that some uh, potential voters won't come to the poll. So it is absolutely important that each person on this call look at his or her states and make sure that access to the polls are not prohibited by by their states. Thank you very much. And we have a, a call from Montre, um, who is actually from Milwaukee, which is a state in the state where they just had elections this weekend. Uh, Milwaukee is a, is a location for the Democratic National Convention this summer. So Montre, you're on. Montre, are you there? Montre, this is our third time. Okay, I don't have Montre on the line, so I'm going to go to our next caller, um, who is who is uh, Kenneth in California. Kenneth in California, are there? You're, he's calling about. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if this is correct, but uh, Kenneth, I think, is calling about incarcerated communities. That's information I'm getting, Kenneth. Good evening, everyone. Thank you. Actually, I'm in North, North Carolina. Okay, we got our wires crossed. Okay, sorry about that, Kenneth. You're on, Kenneth. Hello, where we on? Okay, so I'm not sure who we have on right next, but let me just, um, I'm, I'm going to wait for the uh, operator to give me a, a heads up in, in my earpiece. But in the meantime, let me just uh, ask a question to follow up on the incarcerated communities uh, question that I have. And then if there's another question, we can get into that. But we've seen that there's been a disparate impact of people in who are in incarcerated communities. We know that African-Americans are disproportionately affected, disproportionately incarcerated. And there was a report just today about the Cook County or uh, Chicago uh, facilities that are considered to be uh, something of an epicenter of this epidemic. Uh, what are the, the plans that the NAACP or the legislators have, uh, the congressional legislators have, have in place to sort of deal with that uh, outbreak and, and those incarcerated communities? You, you know, this is Derek in NAACP. So we have three realities here. We have the federal penitentiaries, we have the state correctional facilities, we have the county jails. Uh, we've opened up dialogue with uh, 
some of our sheriffs across the country to talk about the county jails. Uh, one of the models that we're looking at to get other sheriffs to adopt is out of uh, Wayne County, Michigan, with Sheriff Benny Napoleon, who have reduced the county jail population from over 2,500 to just over 900, releasing all nonviolent offenders, uh, with the exception of those who committed uh, domestic violence. Uh, those in incarcerated, they are wearing masks. He's ensured that they have sanitized soap uh, so that his sheriff deputies uh, would be impacted. Uh, today, he's had 65 sheriff deputies to test positive. And he realized that with county jails, people are in and out. And he didn't want neither sheriff deputies or individuals who came to the county jails who may only be there for a week or a month to go back into the community and impact uh, their neighbors. And so he's created a model that we are now talking to other systems uh, to consider adopting. Uh, it is really important because if you are incarcerated, uh, there's no such thing as social distancing, uh, particularly if the jails are overcrowded. And so we really have to get state officials wherever possible uh, and, and county uh, uh, sheriffs, you know, whenever the opportunity presents themselves, to really look at the public health concerns of housing inmates in the manner in which they traditionally do so, because in doing that, uh, you not only affect those who are incarcerated, you affect the guards who then go back home and affect families and communities. Uh, this is a serious matter, and we really need to rethink how we house our those incarcerated in general, but right now we are in the middle of a public health crisis, and we, we must do something different. Thank you very much. We have another call on the line from Oakland. Uh, I believe it's Jamoke or Jamoke. Yes, Jamoke. Thank you so much. Um, and to our wonderful leaders in the NAACP, thank you so much for your service. Um, my question is um, a, a bit to the other and a part of the triangle around disparities, specifically around education. Um, I sit on a um, school board and um, wanted to ask um, directly to um, Congress about looking at phase four um, CARES Act to actually make a greater investment in education and the relief fund. Um, the urban school districts um, are looking at upwards of $100 billion that we believe would be really important, an additional 25 to $50 billion allocated for Title I or IDA. Um, you, of course, know that we learned in this process um, so, much, so many of the deficits that we have about being able to shift to distance learning, access issues, um, and that we are very, very concerned about the incredible learning gap that's going to be increased as a result of COVID and our children not being in school. And it's the adequate, there's just not adequate funds in the end of the CARES Act to support these school districts. I, I work obviously in an urban district, but I'm sure this is true for rural districts as well. So, so um, Jamoke, who, who are you asking your question to, or anyone in particular? Um, the the, the um, um, Speaker Pelosi, but I mean, I know all of you all are fighting on behalf of us on CARES Act. So, um, um, Beth, I'm happy well. to respond to Jamaica's question. Um, let me say thank you because what you're talking about is probably the most important thing that we can do: our investment in our children, their education, and again. Uh, the uh, opportunity that should be the same for everyone. In the bill of the CARES Act, we had $70 billion. It ended up to be 30. 30 is $30 billion. It was okay. It wasn't good. It wasn't great. And we must do much more. 
and that was K through 12, higher ed, with all different aspects. But you bring up some important points, and one is the issue of uh, IDEA.